Good morning. Let's uh, join in a word of prayer. Father God, our only desire as we gather here today is to be a blessing to you, um, to bring you praise and honor that you are worthy to receive. We ask, please, cause your Holy Spirit to fall upon your people. We ask you, please, to be uh, present with us and that we would have an awareness of us being in the glorious presence of a great God. Now we ask you to speak to our hearts, enlighten your words to us, and change us. Um, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Connie and I just got back from a week of camping up in Canada with the family. I, I really love being together with my family. I love camping too, but there's just something so deeply enjoyable about being with family, but curiously, just about every time I'm together with my family, when the vacation's over, I feel profoundly sad, you know, because the, the fun of being together is over, and I, and I feel this real sense of, uh, I don't know, a profound emptiness. Um, I feel a little bit that way, too, because this is uh, a three-day weekend, this is Labor Day weekend, and Labor Day weekend means the summer's over, or just about over, and so there's kind of a sadness that it's, you know, it's back to school time and, and the great warmth and activities of summer are past. Um, I, I feel a little sad about summer being over, even though archery deer season just did open up. And so <laughs> that means yard meat season is open. I kill a deer in my yard every year, so it's, my family calls it yard meat. But there's a sadness about the, the end of summer, too. There's a sadness that it's come to a close. And similarly, we're obviously nearing the very end of our study through the book of Romans, and it's been exhilarating, it's been challenging, it's been stimulating, but we get a tone from Paul as we begin this uh, chapter today that he's, he's wrapping it up. So there's a sadness about things being over. I mean, you can tell um, as, as you read his words that he's gradually drawing this to a close. He's, he's been expounding on these great weighty theological matters. Um, he's been applying it practically. How do these great theological thoughts work out in the life of the church? How does we make this transition to it? Now he's beginning to speak about his personal relationship with some of the people in the church of Rome. And as we get to these personal things at the end, you know, we kind of tend to think, well, he's done with the great teaching of theology. He's wrapping it up. Now he's just saying goodbye to some friends. And we want to skip, skip over these personal things as being of no great concern, of no great significance to us. We don't really have that much to learn. But if we did that, it would be a serious mistake. R.C. Sproul once noted, I once heard a taped sermon, now a classic, by the late Clarence McCartney, that magnificent sermon entitled, Come Before Winter. It was preached from a single phrase that Paul used in his final request to Timothy in the second and last epistle that he wrote to his beloved disciple. The treasures found by McCartney in those seemingly desultory remarks are good reminders not to take lightly anything that Paul even mentions in passing. Now with that in mind, I invite you to turn to some of the closing words of Paul in chapter 15, We'll begin in verse 14. Um, Paul begins this uh, final section of Romans, this uh, theological um, exposition that's been stretching out for, from chapters 1 through 11. It's, it's over, this 
masterly exhortation to holy living from chapter 12 to the previous verse where we left off a couple weeks has ended. Doctrine has been expounded comprehensively. Christian ethic has been described magisterially. But Paul's not finished. He's still got something more to say. Of course, we're thinking... You know, Paul, this would be a good time to shut up and just wrap things up. You know, we're, we tend to think that if uh, a minister would be half as long, he would be twice as good. And so we're, we're thinking, well, don't spoil it, Paul, by just going on and on and on. Just give us the benediction and let's close this up. Um, by the way, we're going to the book of Ruth next in a couple weeks. And so you can purchase the uh, study, what, what do we call those, Hanson, those study guides? Huh? The sermon notes. You can buy them on Amazon for six bucks. They're just the the verses that we're going to be looking through Ruth with pages to write sermon notes in. So I invite you to go ahead and buy those because we'll be there in a couple of weeks. At any rate, we're thinking, Paul, it's time to wrap things up. It's time to move on. But he's still got some important things that he wants to communicate, and he wants to to. Uh, communicates some special relationships he has with some of these Christians in Rome. Now, Paul is not speaking to these Christians as some ethicist teacher who's just trying to communicate some grand principles of conduct. Paul is speaking as a pastor. He's speaking as an evangelist, as, as a shepherd, uh, a servant of God. He's, he's concerned not just to communicate theology. He's concerned for the people. He wants them to understand how knowing these things about God impacts and changes their life. So he, he wants them to, to realize that these truths um, have consequences in real change of life. He's expressing his, his affection for the Church of Rome. And as he began this letter um, and then took off on this theological stuff, now he comes back to this uh, these autobiographical comments. Uh, it's difficult to think of, you know, because he's kind of wandered away. He began with some great information, a personal in exchange with the Romans in chapter 1, but then he kind of bailed out on that, and we've been talking theology for almost 15 solid chapters. Now he comes back to it. So it's best if you think about Romans as a personal letter with a theological treatise that's been stuffed in between. So he in Romans chapter 17, he took off on this theology bent, and now he's finally coming back to it. He begins by thanking God for the, the Church of Rome. Um, even though he had not been there, he's not met any of them. Um, he's, he expresses to them that he does plan to come see them and why he's been delayed in coming. He expresses his great concern for their, for their, their church. He, he tells them that he prays for them. He longs to see them. And he wants to encourage them and be encouraged by them. All of that in chapter 1. And now he goes on to tell us why he hasn't been to see them so far. Well, that's a pretty good question because here's this famous evangelist, the Apostle Paul. And he's been real close to Rome, but he's never dropped by. And the reason for that is he's compelled to preach the gospel on New Frontier. He wants to take the, the word of God where it's not been preached before. And Rome already has several churches in it. So he, he wants to see them because they're, they're Christians, but he's been, um, he's been distracted by these other things that he, that he has to do. So he's, he's, uh, in the meantime, he's been giving us this great 
treatise on theology. He's been talking about the nature of human sinfulness in chapters 1 to 3. Um, he talks about the exclusive nature of the gospel in chapters 3 to 5. Um, therein he tells us there's no room for emperor worship. There's no place for Jewish legalism. There's no purpose in pursuing merit through, through works. Um, he goes on in chapters 6 to 8 to talk about the ongoing sanctification, the, 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 the work the Holy Spirit does to change us to be like Christ. When we get to chapters 9 and 11, these great theological concepts of election and predestination and the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. And then we get to chapters 12 through 15, and he's applying all these things of the gospel and of, of what he's been saying and how that changes our lives. And he's giving um, no room for people to say that they've never been told or they didn't know. He gives no room for people to say that they can go on living their life neglecting fellow brothers and sisters, not using their spiritual gift in the church, or walking over other people because of your profound beliefs or your convictions. There's no place for that. And so now he's going on to tell us the purpose of the letter, and he tells us that he's writing to remind you again uh, because of the grace that was given to him as a minister of Christ Jesus. So the ministry of remembrance is primarily what Paul is writing to. He's not writing to people who don't know these truths. He's not introducing new truths. He's reinforcing truths that he knows that they already have. It's really tempting, if you're the speaker, to want to razzle-dazzle people with something novel. But you should be very cautious whenever you hear somebody bringing something new to the table when you're talking about theology, because that's a probable area for heresy if, it has, if it's not founded in Scripture. So it's not the job of the pastor to come up with something new and expressive and novel uh, week after week. The responsibility of the teacher of the gospel is to bring to your mind the remembrance of the things that you have already learned and to reinforce those things that you already have heard so that you are growing in fuller understanding and obedience to Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is doing in this closing chapters of Romans. Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. So he begins to wrap up his uh, final comments, and he tells us the reason for his writing, and he suggests to us his future travel plans, and then he closes finally by sending some personal greetings to those who are in Rome. But he's not done yet. The summer's almost over. The book is almost complete. But he's not done yet. He still has a bit to say. And what does he say in the text before us today? Well, he, he begins by reminding them that they're doing well. He's not scolding them for their faults. He calls them my brothers. Brothers, you know, I want to remind you of these things. But I'm telling you this because I'm confident you're doing all right. You're doing well. I'm convinced of that. And so he begins these final lines on a rather strong note of faith. And nothing is clearer to us here than he is talking to Christians who take their faith seriously. He's not trying to make 
converts. He's talking to a mature Christian church already. And he directs them as brothers, and he appeals to them using terms in this verse. He uses three different terms that describe their maturity. He says they are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. So he's complimenting the maturity of this Roman church. Now, if those are elements in the Roman church that signify a maturing Christian church, those are elements that we ought to see in our church as well, those very same things. Those very same three criteria can be used to evaluate our, our growth, our, our maturity. And Paul begins by, by complimenting on, on their goodness. Now, when we talk about goodness, we mean two separate kinds of things. We talk about moral and ethical goodness, and then we can talk about goodness the way we typically think of it, you know, like uh, kindness and thoughtfulness and charity towards the poor, people like that. That's especially important to remember because remember where we left off, if you take out the middle part of this treatise, these, Paul begins with chapter 1, and he reminds us there is no one good, no, not one. No one is good. And one of my pet peeves is when you ask somebody, how are you doing? Well, you probably oughtn't ask that anyway because it's a stupid question. But the answer is even more stupid because we always say good. You know, how can you say you're good? You know, and I'm thinking in my heart, there is none good. No one is good. You know, God alone is good. So I, it's one of my pet peeves. But, you know, it kind of presses the point. So if Paul says no one is good, and now we get to the end here, and he's saying he's complimenting them on their goodness you know, how do you harmonize those? Well, two ways. Principally, he is referring to the fact that since they have become Christians and we have this ongoing sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, they are genuinely becoming good in the moral and ethical sense. And he's also complimenting them on the fact that as Christians who love one another, they are practicing goodness, you know, friendliness, thoughtfulness, charity towards each other, in, in a way that is good. So then we might ask, if that's the case, how are we doing as a church? Well, we're, we're good. <laughs> we're good. I, I, I love to see this growing sanctification in you, that you are growing in Christ-likeness, that you're growing in the grace of Christ Jesus. And um, we're becoming good by his work in us. Now the second checkpoint or measuring device uh, phrase here that he uses is that you are complete in knowledge. That he does not mean that you've learned everything in an academic sense and there's nothing more to learn. He's talking about a, a practical understanding. It's not that you know something um, in your mind, but that because you know it, you live it out. And he, that's what he's complimenting them for. David Wells, who was a professor at Gordon-Conwell um, Seminary, wrote a book called No Place for Truth. And Wells has a very simple but very disturbing thesis. His thesis is that evangelicalism as a religious force in American life is either dead or it's about to die. Now, he, his point is that we as evangelical Christians have abandoned any serious commitment to truth. He's not saying that we have died as a sociological force. I mean, that's pretty obvious. Evangelicalism in America 
has a lot of churches, a lot of people, and a lot of money. There's a lot of influence sociologically by the evangelical church. But what he's saying is, as a, as a religious force, we're, we're dead because we don't really believe in the power of God to change people. We don't really believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to make a significant impact or any particular difference. There's a big difference between what we say we believe and what we think we believe and what we actually believe in the way we live our lives. There's a term called practical atheism. It means you may believe that God exists. You may believe that it really is a God, but practically you live your life as if there's not a God. And do you really expect that one day you will stand before the living God and give an account for your life? Because that's what the Bible says. If you don't believe that's true, you're a practical atheist. So Professor Wells is attempting to show how evangelicals say they believe in God. They say they believe in the power of, of God's word and the Holy Spirit, but practically they believe in something completely different. We believe in Madison Avenue techniques of evangelism. We believe in, 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 in psychology to cause uh, growth and, and maturity. We, we believe in spiritual mysticism, spiritual voodoo to try to discern what the will of God is in our life. We believe in the power of, of, of wealth and, and numbers uh, to, to impact society. But that is not what the early Christians believed. They did not believe in those things. They believed in the power of the Holy Spirit to not only change them, but to change the world. What's happening to evangelicals is exactly what happened to the liberal church about 100 years ago. Here you had... Um, Churches that were, were full and they had lots of money, but they began losing both people and influence. And Wells is saying that's exactly what's going to be happening to the evangelical church too. We're going to be, we're, we're a force to contend with now, but, but uh, we're going to go the same direction as the liberal churches did. Plenty of money, uh, plenty of members, but losing both rapidly. And so I'll ask you a second time, how are we doing? How do we compare as a church to this criterion? And I will tell you, exceptional. And I can testify that this church is growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I see that lived out in, in your life. Now the third criteria that he poses for us here is he says that the believers in Rome are competent to instruct one another. Again, it's tragic that so much of American Christianity believes that the only way that we can counsel one another or instruct one another is if we follow the principles of secular psychology, despite the fact that many of those principles are directly opposed to what the Bible teaches and frequently opposed to what they say among themselves. They, Although the truth is that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, we believe that in order for us to be instructed, we need someone with a seminary degree. In order for us to be counseled, we need somebody with a psychology degree. Nothing could be further from the truth. 99% of all counseling that Christians need are from one another who hold their feet to the flame and instruct them from the word of God. Paul's consistently um, concerned about the, the health and the, the well-being of the church. 
and he's using scripture to back up his point. So I have to ask, do we really believe in the power of scripture to change people? Do we talk about him with other people naturally and often? Do we love our brothers and sisters enough that we will confront them with the truth and expose them to the gospel and say, you're not living according to the word of God. This is what the word of God says. Walk ye in it. Do we care enough when we see a brother walking in the wrong direction, when we see them deviating from the truth, that we tell them about it? Now, how are we doing? Really well. I can testify. I have seen many of you confront brothers who were wayward, who are not walking in the truth, and gently correcting them and showing them from Scripture how what they were doing was wrong. And I applaud you for that. So just as Paul is using these criterions, telling the Roman church, they are a mature, healthy church, I can say the same thing about this church. Verse, where are we? Verse 15, maybe. But on some points I've written to you very boldly, by way of reminder. Now, Paul has given a lot of commands. He's given a lot of admonitions. Too many for us to repeat here. But he says he does this boldly by way of reminding them. He wants to remind them over and over again of truths they already know. He doesn't speak boldly to them because they are ignorant or untaught, but quite to the contrary. He speaks boldly because they do know the truth. And they are spiritually strong, and they're well-equipped. He speaks bold because they are uncompromising and steadfast, not because they're weak and carnal. See, a good teacher has to keep in mind that there's this balance between familiarity and forgetfulness, that you have to keep bringing these great concepts to our mind to reinforce them. Okay, some of you went to college and studied a foreign language, and how much of that do you remember? Not much or algebra in my case, you know. <laughs> if you don't use it, you lose it. That's the point that Paul's trying to make here. Is you need to be reminded of stuff you already know. You need to be reinforced with things you already know. And as you know, as you learn more about what you already know, you go stronger in your faith. And so that's why Paul instructs Timothy. He says, keep reminding them, keep reminding the brethren of the truths that you have learned in the gospel. Constantly nourished, he says, 1 Timothy 4, 6. Constantly nourished on the words of faith and the sound doctrine which you have been following. And then later he writes again to his young protege, um, Timothy, and he admonishes, continually remind the flock about these central truths of the gospel, 2 Timothy 2, 8. He, invites, he advises Titus, uh, remind those under his care to be subject to rulers, um, authorities to be obedient, uh, Titus 3.1, in his second letter, Peter similarly assures his readers that he would always be ready to remind them of these important truths. Uh, 2 Peter uh, 1.12, um, he explains uh, that they need to be reminded of this very purpose to stir them up by way of reminder. 2 Peter 3.10, uh, the majority, the, the major responsibility of the pastor is not to introduce you into new novel truths, but to reinforce what you already know, to remind you of these things in a way that's, that's fresh and, and stimulating. Um, verse, I forgot where we are, but I think we're still in verse 15. Because of the grace that was given to, to me by God, 
because God has given him this grace, Paul is reminding them. He's not talking about grace of salvation. He's talking about the grace he received as an apostle. He's, he's not writing down things that, that just popping into his head, or he's not writing his own opinions. He's not writing down his own beliefs. He's not writing about his own wisdom. He's writing under divine authority. God is telling him these divine truths to relate. Verse 16. But on some points I've, had to, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace God given me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Here Paul calls himself a minister He's not calling himself, in this case, an apostle or an evangelist. He says, in the, in, I'm serving as a minister in the priestly service. He uses a long string of, of words here that relate to the temple service of the priests and the Levites. He's, he's not saying he is a priest. He's saying, what I'm doing is like a priest. I'm doing some of the same things that a priest might do. He's not a literal priest. You know, as an apostle... Paul conveys uh, the words of Jesus to the world. In his kingly role, he's establishing churches and appointing uh, leaders in those churches. Um, but he's also, he says, he's acting in the priestly role here. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, the priest performed several duties uh, in the Old Testament. They offered sacrifices. They assisted people in worship. They instructed people in the word of God. And they represent man to God. They're the intermediary. So the man comes and through the priest, he, he speaks with God or addresses God. The, the gospel does never call the servant, whether he's a minister, a pastor, an elder, a preacher, never calls him a priest, however, because Christ is our only literal priest. He is our high priest. He alone has made atonement for our sins by his death on the cross. He alone makes intercession for us. He's the one we pray to, to intercede to the Father. Um, that's why um, pastors are never called priests in the New Testament. So we, we have one high priest, and so there's no longer a human priesthood, an earthly institution of the priesthood. There's only, um, 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But there's a sense, too, in which we, we, we all are priests, that every Christian is a priest. First uh, Peter 2.5, as living stones we are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter later says we are a royal race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Uh, Revelation 1.6, he's made us to be a kingdom and priests of his God and Father. So Paul here is ministering figuratively as a priest in the sense that when he wins the Gentiles, these unbelievers, the, the disobedient to Christ, he is in a sense offering them um, to God. And in that sense, every one of us, when we win someone to Christ, when we bring them to Christ, we are offering them as this sacrifice to God, and we're performing the role in that sense like a priest, like a priest would. So in the sense, every believer is, 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 is priestly in his offering to the Lord. Verse 17, 
In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ and thus make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it's written, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. So Paul mentions that he, he, one of the ways that he wins people to Christ is through signs and wonders. Now, a wonder is something that attracts attention. It's an amazing event. It, it uh, gives credibility to the, the speaker. A sign is something that points beyond the event to something else, just like a, a road sign. The road sign isn't the curves. It's telling you there are coming curves. And so the signs that Paul would perform are pointing to, uh, to, to Christ. Uh, when Jesus says, uh, I am the light of the world, and then quickly thereafter he gives sight to a blind man, he's performing a sign. He's pointing to a, a greater reality. Now, some people will say that signs and wonders ceased with the age of the apostles, and therefore there are no miracles taking place today. But, you know, I'd question that, because you look at James chapter 5, beginning in 14, uh, if anyone is sick, let him call for the elders and, uh, to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. So apparently, even though there aren't apostles, James is talking about elders, that, that elders can be called on um, for, for healing, and that that should be done throughout church history. There are a lot of churches that pray powerfully and see amazing miracles performed. People that doubt tend to doubt because they say, well, I've never seen it, and I, therefore I disbelieve it. Or I've seen a lot of fraud, I've seen a lot of phony, therefore I disbelieve. But that's really stupid to come to that conclusion. It, you all believe in Mars. I doubt that any of you have seen it, but you believe it to be true because you have had credible testimony of people who have related that to you. Now, Connie and I knew this girl in college. She'd been in a terrible car accident, broke her back, and they fused her back together so she could barely walk. We witnessed her being healed so that she, could, she became a dancer. Uh, just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean it isn't so, and it's the height of ignorance to say that you disbelieve because you've never seen anything credible. You have credible witness that can tell you God still does miracles today, and we have every reason to believe confidently when we pray that God will intercede for us. At any rate, Paul goes on to say, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I fulfilled my ministry. Uh, uh, Jerusalem, obviously, is the birthplace of the church. Illyricum is not a town. It's a, it's a region in the what used to be Yugoslavia, which is today like, what is it, Croatia, Slovenia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, uh, Kosovo, Serbia, I'm forgetting some, Montenegro, what, Bill, what am I missing? Albania. Okay, well, <laughs> Albania. So it's the area, if you're looking at a map, Italy's, you know, coming down at an angle, and, and Illyrium, Illyr Illyricum is that region that's just to the northwest. So it's the furthest extent there of the, the Roman world. And by, as the crow flies, it's about 1,000 miles from Jerusalem. By foot, it's like 2,000 miles. And Paul is saying, I, I did all this. I traveled this whole area 
doing pioneering mission work. You know, make it my ambition to preach the gospel where, the, where Christ has not already been named. So have, had the gospel gone into Illyricum, we would have talked about um, cities like uh, Delminium and Apollonia, major cities in that area. Verse 22, this is the reason why I so often have been hindered from coming to you, but now since I no longer have any room for those work in those regions, and since I long for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and be helped on my journey there by you once I enjoy your company for a while. So again, Paul's never been to Rome because Rome already has established churches there are several churches, maybe many churches in there, but Paul has finished his pioneering work as far as he could, and now he wants to go where the gospel has not gone. He wants to go to Spain, but he's planning to go through Rome and meet these Christians, and he says, and he hopes to be helped on his trip. Well, obviously, he's hoping that they'll help him financially, but he also is hoping in that they'll send companions with him who will be co-workers with him in in the gospel uh, outreach. Spain, by the way, is not unknown uh, to the world. Remember when Jonah is running away, where does he go? He goes to Tarshish. Tarshish is a coastal town in Spain. And Solomon had uh, shipments every three years that came from Spain of gold and ivory uh, apes and peacocks. Every three years came from Spain. So it was a, it was a known place. It was the western end of the continent, but it was already a place, it's not empty space, it's a place of major commerce and cultural interest. It had renowned Roman roads. There are still uh, examples of fine Roman architecture there today. The province of Spain had produced many outstanding men, such as Marshall, the famous man for his epigrams, and Lucan, the poet, and the orator Quintilian, perhaps the most famous Spaniard of the Roman uh, Empire was Seneca. He's a notable statesman and Stoic philosopher. He became the tutor of, of Nero. He served for, as prime minister of the empire for a while. So Spain is not unknown. It's just unevangelized. And Paul wants to go and take the gospel to someplace that it hasn't already been. And by the way, we don't think that Spain actually was thoroughly evangelized until maybe the third century. So it's understandable why he wants to go to Spain. He wants to go where there's some fresh territory. Um, it's important to Paul, and that's why he tells him he, he's, he's going to come through there. Verse 25. Am I, am I getting long yet? Okay. Verse 25. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessing, they ought to also be of service to them in their material blessings. When therefore I've completed this, and have delivered to them what was been collected, what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now remember from our study of Acts that for several months now, Paul has been collecting from the Gentile churches, which were not wealthy. We're talking about from poor Gentile churches, a financial offering to bring to um, the, the, the church of Jerusalem. He's got two points. By the way, these are the major two points of Paul's life. His primary uh, passion was to share the gospel to the Gentiles. 
His secondary passion was to create solidarity, and we've seen this many times through his books, solidarity between the Jew and the Gentile Christians. So he wants to bring this financial offering, and he brings with him several representatives from these different churches to come to um, Jerusalem to reinforce this sense of solidarity. The Gentiles and the Jews stand on equal footing before Christ. And so he's taken up this collection from Berea, Thessalonica, uh, Derby, uh, Ephesus, and he brings with him people from those churches too to show the Jews, I'm not just bringing you money, I'm showing you this sense of, of solidarity that, that we have together. Of course, he goes to Jerusalem, He's following God's plan to bring this, but things don't go as he had hoped that they would. In fact, he's just told us he hopes to come to Rome, and in fact, he does come to Rome, but not the way he planned to come to Rome. Remember, he gets arrested while he's in Jerusalem, and he ends up in Rome two years later, but only in chains. So he, he's, things end up differently than what he expects. Uh, we, want to, we want to wonder, well, he gets out, you know, after this arrest in Rome, you can fast forward here, he's, he's, he's arrested, he's in this house imprisonment in Rome, he's acquitted of his charges, probably the Jews from Jerusalem don't show up to bring the charges, and so he's released. And for two or three years, Paul is out and about, and it's then that we think that he actually did go to Spain. In the year 95, Clement, who's the bishop of Rome, writes that uh, he thinks Paul has gone taking the gospel to the western uttermost of the empire. He gets re-arrested, taken back to Rome after about three years. This time he's in the Mamertine prison. He's not under house arrest, and it's then that he's executed. But in that in-between time, we have good reason to think he actually did make it to Spain and take the gospel there. Um, uh, well, I lost my place here. Uh, verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed by your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So look here, he's, he's asking them to pray with him for three things. He asks them to pray that, that he would be rescued from his enemies so that he can take the gospel um, to Jerusalem. He asks, second, that when he, that he gets to Jerusalem and offers the gift, it will be accepted and that the Jews will see this as a sign of solidarity. And he prays, thirdly, that, uh, that he'll have a safe journey to Jerusalem and that God will lead him safely to, to, to Rome where he'll be refreshed and sped on his westward trip. But notice all of this is predicated by if it would be your will, by God's will. Because God did answer these prayers, but not at all like what Paul had hoped for. First of all, when he arrives at Jerusalem, uh, the hostile Jews made false accusations. They beat him, they arrested him. There was a mob that wanted to kill him right away. There was uh, another group that had uh, plans to kill him more carefully. And God answered his prayer in the sense that neither group was successful. He, he was alive, but not, not how he expected. Secondly, we don't really know how the offering that he brought was received. We 
infer from Acts 24, 17, we infer that it went well and it was received well. And finally, like I said a minute ago, Paul does reach Rome, but he's, it's not till two years later while he's awaiting um, to go to trial in, in Caesar's courts. Because here you have to recognize there's something about prayer that we need to apply to ourselves here. God does answer our prayers, but frequently not the way we ask. Remember when David prays, he asks God to spare the life of his unborn son. God does not grant that request. Paul says he prays three times that God would remove the thorn in his flesh. God does not remove the thorn in his flesh. Perhaps the best example is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, Father, if it be your will, remove this cup from me, but according to your will, let it be done. So that's an important thing. You know, we should always pray whatever your heart desires, because God loves it when you bring your heart's request to him. But we should always have the caveat, but according to your will. God, if you have a better plan, absolutely go with that. This is what I am asking for, what I am hoping for. But I trust you, God, that you are loving and you will do what is right, not necessarily what I enjoy, but what brings you glory. And if it brings you glory, so be it. Do that. And prayer requests often go that way. But perhaps the cardinal characteristic of a person who faithfully does the will of God is the one who prays, who brings those requests to him. So Paul, he uses a really interesting term. I don't like throwing out Greek, but this one's funny. He says, I want you to strive together. Soon agonizomai. You get the word soon as together, and you recognize agonize right there. To agonize with me. Strive, work together. Prayer often is agony. It's work. It's agony sometimes because we have an enemy in our own wicked heart that, that, that we need to pray against. And we, are, we are sinners who love to sin, and we need to pray against ourselves. And, of course, we have an enemy on the outside who's constantly trying to defeat us. And so we need to not only agonize for ourselves, we need to agonize for one another. We need to struggle with, uh, with, with the Lord in, in prayer. And now Paul closes with this prayer of blessing. May the God of peace be with you. Um, amen. Notice he doesn't pray for the gift of peace. I mean, that would be good, right? Peace, brothers. No, he's not just praying for the gift of peace. Peace, he's praying for the presence of the God of peace to be with them, the God of peace. And the phrase, with you all, again, he's, he's, he's joining this, this uh, unity between the Gentile and the Jew. May God's presence, the peace of God, be with you all. Doesn't that remind you of the, of the Jewish benediction, you know, uh, from number 624, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace? So he's bringing all these elements together that, that God would grant peace both personally and corporately, and he's bringing this final archetypal benediction to the church. So we've been through a, a long passage, not just to today when we looked at Romans uh, 15, 14 through 33, but, but you can see we've covered a lot of territory as we've gone through the book of Romans. And we can see that, that Paul is interested in in relating to them his, his deep aspirations for, for, for unity and for the advancement of the gospel among the Gentiles. He, he, he's summarizing what he probably taught everywhere. Romans is probably a summary of what Paul's basic teaching was everywhere he went. He's focusing on his, 
his, his mission to the Gentiles, his mission to the nations, and it's a topic that he keeps coming back to here in Romans, and he's bringing back physically to the, the, the church in Jerusalem. We see this very clear calling that Paul had on his life. He knew what he was supposed to be doing. I couldn't come to you in Rome because I was already busy doing what God called me to do. Wouldn't it be great if you knew what God wanted you to do and you could just disregard everything that was not that? And here Paul says, I'd love to come to you. I would really love to uh, reinforce our relationship. I'd love to be blessed by you and offer you a blessing. But I can't because God's called me to evangelize where the gospel has not gone. But he keeps reminding us that he wants to deepen this, this solidarity between the, the Jewish church and, and the Gentile church. And so as the book draws to an end, and as summer's drawing to an end, and there's a bit of sadness, I mean, because we're, we're wrapping something up that we've enjoyed for a great deal of, I've enjoyed it for a lot of time, but I feel kind of a sadness about closing Romans, and I feel a sadness about, obviously, about the summer being over. It's been a great experience, but it's not over yet. I mean, we still got one more chapter of Romans, and we still got, we got fall hunting season at Puyallup Fair, and we often have nice weather here until, you know, Thanksgiving time. There's, there's a bit more summer and a bit more Romans left. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing on this church and that we would display this growing love and unity that Paul was so passionate about. And we ask you to bring to our remembrance, again, as we look at this communion table, um, the, the cross of Christ, his blood shed for us. We ask you, God, to uh, nourish us in our spirit as we take these symbols of our faith and of your sacrifice. We set these things and these people aside from common, ordinary things to sacred, holy things that you can use and bring yourself glory. And we ask these things now in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'll ask the men if you'll come forward and distribute the elements at this time. Yeah.